0: Now, I know on Sunday mornings you have been studying Paul's letter to the Galatians. And as Will and I discussed the the texts on which I would preach, you you even saw the the connection. Will has, has made it clear to us. Even in our assurance of pardon, when we saw in Galatians 3, that God promises to give his spirit to those he transforms. And so I want us to turn to another letter of the Apostle Paul Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, Ephesians chapter 5, where the, the truth that he lays out before the Galatian church, that is the transforming work of God's Spirit, is, is brought into, into greater clarity for us in Ephesians 5. Now, it's, I know it's difficult to, to just open your Bible and, and figure out, okay, where am I? What's, what's going on here? And we don't expect you to, to be a, a Bible expert. This may, this may be the first time you're opening a Bible. And so you can can use the Bible that was there on the chair for you. But when we turn to Paul's letter to the Ephesians, this is a a pastor's note to a church, and it's a reminder of the gospel. And and one of the reasons that that Ephesians is, is, is one of my favorites is because the outline is so clear. It's six chapters. The first half of the book is the story of this is what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. You need to know the truth of the gospel, and then we make the shift in the second half of the book to, this then is how you live. God rescues, God saves, and now we respond. And so we're in that second half of the book, and, and, and I want you to just notice in, in chapter 4, as Paul turns from the, the truth about what God has done for us in Jesus, he then it, he begins the second half of the letter by saying in chapter 4, verse 1 of Ephesians, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling in which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So that is the the theme then that gets worked out in chapters 4, 5, and 6. To walk in a manner worthy of what God has done for us in the gospel and to live in the unity of the spirit. And so we're going to we're going to jump a chapter ahead to Ephesians chapter 5 and I want to read to you verses 15 to 21. All right, I'm just going to read it's one paragraph that we're pulling out of this letter, but I wanted you to have that context so that we know where we are. God has or Paul has already explained this is what God has done for you. Now, live a life that's worthy of that calling. All right. Ephesians 5 beginning at verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk on wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so as we have heard this text, I want us to, to consider that question, what does it mean to live a spirit-filled life? Now, Martin Luther was a, was a theologian, a professor of theology. He was a, a monk in the, the 16th century. And I suspect in your study of the book of Galatians, Martin Luther's name has come up because it was through his study of Galatians that, that God showed him the radical transforming power of the gospel. But Luther, as a, as a Catholic theologian, he, he traveled to, to Rome. He was, he was anxious when he got there to visit the holy Steps. These were 28 steps, which were said to have been taken from the judgment hall of Pilate. And so these are believed, legend says, these were the steps up which Jesus himself would have walked on the night of his betrayal and arrest. And so pilgrims would flock to Rome. You can still travel there today to see these steps. And pilgrims would go on their knees, step by step, praying that that God would, would, through this experience, change their lives. And so Luther, like the other pilgrims, ascended these steps on his knees, praying for a spiritual blessing. But when Luther, the monk, reached the top of the steps, he realized nothing had changed. It didn't matter if he went up 28 steps or 2,800 steps, Nothing was working to, to bring transformation to his own life. There was no spiritual blessing, no personal benefit. It was on this trip to Rome that, that Luther began to see the futility the, of, of working for his own salvation, of finding some pattern, some path of life, some pilgrimage he could take to make himself right with God. And what he was doing is beginning to see the biblical truth that it's God's radical transformation, His free grace that's given to us. Now, we live in a culture where we have neighbors and friends who, who may take such pilgrimages. Maybe you yourself have. But we also live with neighbors and friends, or maybe this is the way you think. That you think, well, yeah, this talk of spirituality, I don't, I don't think it can happen through religious systems. I don't think it can happen even through a church. Even a church like like hope and you see I mean you may be maybe may here today with with this inner turmoil of what am I doing here? Like how did I end up here at a place where we're talking about God? I'm not sure I even believe there is a God. Maybe you're you're someone or you have friends and neighbors who would describe themselves as spiritual but not religious. That they're they're looking for something or maybe you're looking for something bigger in your life. Some way to sort of sort of gather yourself but but what does it really mean? What does it really mean biblically to be a spiritual person? Can we find it through our own obedience, through the climbing of steps, through the recitation of, of prayers? Or can we find it by just wandering through the world and, and discovering our own path? I mean, the good news is here, the Apostle Paul makes clear what it means to live a life that, in which we are filled by the Spirit. He he tells us, look at verse 15. He says, look carefully then how you walk. It again, we you saw that this connects us right back to chapter 4, verse 1. That we're supposed to be examining our lives, how we live and how we walk. It's it's a description of of and and you you can get the image of walking through life, of be careful how you live your life. It's it's not really like, you know, can you walk the runway in a nice way? Or do you, you know, can you, can you, can you run a, a fast or, or, or a long distance? No, it's a description of live your life in a way that shows forth the spirit of God transforming you. And then this passage is really built around three different contrasts. Now, to 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 be fair, it's it's a little bit obscured in in any English translation that we have. But but look at look at the three contrasts. It's perhaps most clear there in verse fifteen. When we're told, be careful then how you walk. That's the the big category. And then the contrast, not as unwise, but as wise. So verse 15 is our first contrast. Then if you jump to verse 17, we have the not as foolish, but understanding the will of God. Or verse 18 gives us the third contrast then. Not as one who gets drunk, but one who is filled with God's Spirit. So let's walk through those contrasts to see what it means to live a life built upon the gospel, a life in which we are filled with God's spirit. That that first contrast there in verse 15. Look carefully then at how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Right now, when you think of wisdom, you might have this picture of a Hood owl up in the, the branches, sort of a, a caricature of, of wisdom. And so wisdom, you, you know, you might think of like, well, who are the people in my life that, I would, life that I would consider wise? And maybe you have the idea of, well, who is the person to whom I would turn if I had this problem? But see, that's more of like an, an, an encyclopedia. You can just ask Siri the answer to that question. You, it, so, so wisdom is not merely knowing the truth. In biblical categories, the person who is wise is the person who understands how to live and how to apply the truth of God's Word in life. And and that makes sense, even the way we use the word wisdom colloquially in English, that it's the the person who's wise might not be the person with the most facts. It's the person who can apply those facts, because sometimes the the wisest people in your life are people with with limited education, but there's a a clarity of purpose, a, a steadfastness of a commitment to the gospel. See, that's the biblical category. And so Paul is saying, look at your life. Look at how you're living your life, how you're walking through life, and do so not as someone who is unwise, but someone who is wise. And then look at verse 16 as he explains what it means to live a life of wisdom. He says, Making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Making the best use of the time. I mean, this sounds like the kind of phrase that, that you would get in a, in a seminar at work on, on time management. Of Don't check your email throughout the day. Make the best use of your time. You know, put the, put the, the first things first in life. But, and, and yes, I, I think it, it means that. But, but Paul is actually being more specific here. When he says make the, the best use of the times, or, or other translations would say make... make uh, Every, take, take advantage of every opportunity. It, it's really this phrase that says, redeem the time. Red, buy back what the, the moments you have right in front of you. Buy them back. And, and in, in Colossians, Paul, Paul presses this even further to say specifically what he's talking about. Are those moments that are right in front of you in life that you have to share the gospel. He's saying, make the best use of the time because he's talking about the days which are evil. Now, if you were to read through more of Paul's letters, you would understand that, that he, he categorizes the, the world into, into this epic of history in which you and I live, the, the evil days while we're awaiting the return of Christ. Evil because the, the full reign of Jesus is not seen in everyone's lives. And, and we don't actually, you don't need to read a newspaper to figure that out. You just need to look at your own heart. To realize that, that even as a Christian, there's a rebellion still within you. You haven't been completely transformed. And so when Paul says, make the best use of the time, this isn't this isn't mere time management theory for us. This is apply the gospel to your life right now because we live in an evil age. We are our own hearts are evil. Make the best use of the time that's right in front of you by letting the gospel be at the center of your life. Make the best use of the time by announcing the gospel. Bob Froze was a, was a much used backup goaltender for the, the Philadelphia Flyers. Now, this this illustration, and it was a news story I read a couple of years ago. I mean, it combines some of my, my passions. Hockey and the gospel. But, but this was before my time, uh, but Bob Froze was a, was a backup goaltender, but he, but he played regularly. This was back in the 80s. He was partnered in goal, so, so I've only one of them playing at a time, but with the budding superstar, Pelly Lindbergh, and, and, and Lindbergh was this, this young up-and-coming player that the, the Flyers believed he will transform this franchise. He is the one who will lead us back to, to championships, and they Froze uh, and, and Lindbergh competed against each other. They they pressed each other. They 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 had conflict. But they, as the season began, they they had worked through it. They were they'd become friends. But but Lindbergh was he was watching TV in in the locker room, and there was a there was a, a televangelist on. Now to be fair, as a as a preacher, sometimes television preachers frighten me because I think if that's what you think of me, then I'm in real trouble. But but, but it prompted a really important question because Lindbergh turned to, to his, his, his teammate and he said, Frosty, I mean, the guy's last name is Froze and he spends all his time on the ice. I mean, what a perfect hockey name. He says, he says Frosty, what's a Christian? Now, you might think, what a great opportunity to share the gospel. Make the best effort to deal with this. Make, make use, the best use of the time. He's just had a non-Christian teammate turn to him and say, what's a Christian? But Frosty was furious. I and mean, here's this, this guy in his mid-20s trying to fit in on a hockey team. And, and that's a hard thing to do for goaltenders because goaltenders are crazy. Like, I mean, I think by temperament they have to be to, to let people shoot pucks at them at 100, at 100 miles an hour. But, but here's this young guy with, with more money than, he, than he's ever had before, trying to fit in on a team where, where they're regularly out partying. And he's furious. He's thinking to himself, like, you don't need to ask me. We spend every other night of our lives in hotel rooms. There's a Bible in every drawer. Just go figure it out yourself, Pelly. Well, if you know the name Pelly Lindbergh, then you sadly know what comes next. Because it was just two weeks later that Pelly Lindbergh died in an auto accident caused by his own drunk driving. And for Bob Froze, it was a horrific night because he had never shared the gospel, even though he'd been asked point blank, Frosty, what's a Christian? And it was in that moment that he remembered the advice a a former teammate, an an older man, a a veteran, had told him, who had challenged him and just point blank said, Frosty, you, you call yourself a Christian, but you're not living like one. Live like a a Christian, and so the night of Pelly Lindbergh's death was a transforming night in Bob Froese's life. He he finished out his playing career, and he had, had wide open doors to get into coaching, but he didn't. He got into preaching. He felt the call of God and realized, I have to redeem the time. I missed the opportunity then, but I want, to, I want to make sure my life reflects this truth, that I'm going to make the best use of the time that's in front of me because the days are evil. My friends need the gospel. And so who is it in your life? I mean, maybe you have somebody, a, a coworker that's turned to you and asked you a question almost that direct. But maybe it's, maybe it's somebody turning to you and saying, like, I just don't understand how I'm going to get through, through life. A friend who, or a family member who reveals the, the deep brokenness in their life, in his or her life. Make the use of the time by announcing the gospel. I, I heard someone offer a challenge to, to churches this week, to, to Christians, who said if the, the only people you speak about the gospel with are already Christians, then you don't really understand the gospel. Because what is the gospel? It is good news that transforms people's lives. And, and, and you, those of you that are, that are committed, committed members here at HOPE, part of this, this core group and launch team, you understand that. You see it. You feel it week by week that my life needs to be all But it's not only on Sunday mornings. The, the, the neighbors, the friends that you walk by, your teammates, your classmates, they're the ones that need to hear the gospel. You are given the opportunity to use the time that God has put in front of you for the sake of his kingdom. And so live, live, not as unwise, chasing the things of this world. Live as those who are wise, who apply the gospel. And now the the second contrast. Look at verse 17. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. You, you hear the contrast. It was just like the contrast in, the first, in the, the, that first contrast. Not as unwise, but as wise. Not as foolish, which is the opposite. That is what it is to be unwise. I mean, we might call somebody a fool who, who keeps making the same dumb mistake. But foolishness in the scriptures is, is an even greater insult than just calling somebody dumb. Because it, the, the fool might be somebody who actually understands things really well, but won't live by them. And so Paul is saying, don't live as one who is foolish, but understand what the will of God is. Now, when, when we hear that kind of phrase, we might think of, of the, the ways in which which we, we, we have to make decisions, like like Kelly and Katie have had to do. Do we, do we go? And so we, we think, do, do, what, what does God want me to do in this specific instance? And, and, I, and I think we're right to apply that that those kinds of questions. What does God want me to do in, in this moment? Should I take this job? Should I move my family? Should I date this person? Should I, should I pursue this education? Should I, what, whatever the next step, but, but, it, but it's bigger than that. It's, it, we, need to, we need to apply the gospel in those moments, but when, when Paul says, don't live as one who is foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, he, it, that doesn't just mean so I can I can figure out the next thing I'm supposed to do. It's it's bigger. To understand the will of God is to understand His plan of redemption. Let's turn back in your Bibles. You'll have to flip to chapter 1. In chapter 1, verse 9 of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, remember, the first half of the book is this is what God has done for you. The second half of the book is now live like it's true. So in chapter 1, we're finding out what God did for us. And by sending Jesus Christ We're told in chapter 1, Jesus, who is the one who who paid the penalty for our sins, we read in chapter 1, verse 9, that it is through Jesus that God the Father is making known to us the mysteries of his will, according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ. And what is God's will? Look at verse 10. As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. You see, when, when we talk about the will of God, we don't just mean what decision do I make facing this, this fork in the road in life. No, it's, it's bigger than that. It's seeing where do these paths lead? Do these, do the, does the path that I'm walking on lead to the glorification of Jesus Christ and the, the spread of the gospel? And if, we actually, if we're actually looking at the end of the road, then when we find ourselves at a fork in the road, it, those kinds of decisions become easier not simplified, but easier decisions because we're, we're thinking, what is God's will, God's redemptive plan? From the, from the beginning of history, chapter one describes, all the way through the end of God's story, what is God's will? It's that my life would be transformed. And so oftentimes, rather than sort of wrestling with, you know, should I, should I take this job or, or this job, we, we think of it in terms of, but what what kingdom purposes can I serve? What are the needs of people around me? We're not just thinking of what will I get out of this. We're we're looking further down the road. And sometimes the answer of what is God's will for me now is to just take the next step. Just in obedience, take the very next step. You don't actually have to have have the the five-year plan or 10-year plan or 15-year plan perfectly worked out. Just take the next step in obedience because God's will stretches from way before your life, all the way to the end of history. And so see God at work and don't live as one who is foolish, but consider God's will, God's transforming purpose of making us more and more like Christ. All right, now the the third contrast. Let's go back to chapter 5, verse 18. And Paul says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. All right, now this is the most specific of these commands. The the, the previous contrasts were, you know, contrasts of of foolishness versus wisdom. This is a very specific command. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And now you may be thinking, ah, this is just what I expected. This This is the problem with Christianity, you might think. It takes all of the fun things in life and puts the words do not in front of them. Do not enjoy alcohol. Do not do whatever you want sexually. I mean, it's, it's like, and maybe that's, your, maybe that's your perception of Christians. And, and maybe even as a Christian, that's your perception of what, what the Christian faith is. It's God just sort of standing like a principal, waiting to catch you doing something wrong. You know, it's God waiting to scold you. It's God who's taken all of the fun things in life, He's taking the cookies and he's put them up on the top shelf and then he stands there and taunts you because you don't get any cookies. But, but that's not Christianity at all. No, what is Christianity? It is God not, not putting the joys of life away from us. It's God coming down into, into our midst so that we can live lives filled with joy and purpose. Because yes, Christianity has, as we want to follow after and walk In the ways that would please God, has ways things that would contradict with our culture. But but what is he saying? Paul is saying, "Do not let your life be controlled by someone or something else." Yeah, I mean, is there wisdom? Even, even with, even with the, the tragic story of Pelle Lindbergh, is there wisdom to not let your life be, be, be one that's that's drunken? Or or worse, debauchery. I mean, that's that's taking drunkenness and then turning it into a distorted sexual perversion and pleasure. And and we could see how that could happen. But but Paul is actually pressing deeper, further into our lives. The reason we don't get drunk. It's not because there, there, there isn't the, the appropriate place to enjoy the, the good gifts God has given us. No, it's drunkenness is to allow yourself to be out of control and who should be in control of your life. God's spirit should have absolute control. And so if you let something else, maybe for you it's, it's not alcohol. I mean, Maybe the specific command that, that Paul would, would bring to you is don't let your life be ruled by your wealth. Don't let your life be be ruled by your your sexual desires. Don't let your life be ruled by anything other than God's Spirit who is doing the transforming work in you. And so, the Spirit of God is the one who was promised to us in Christ. If you you take the time and go back and read in chapter 1, we see that because Jesus was raised from the dead, He pours out His Spirit on us. The Spirit who is the one who gives us Wisdom and understanding, so that we can hear the truth and apply it in our lives. The Spirit, who is the one who 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 lets us be filled with Jesus Christ, we were told. We're told here to be filled with the Spirit. It's this. it's, it's this command. It, 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 I mean, it's actually it's it's really difficult in terms of grammar because it is an active command. Be filled right now. You need to be continually, as a Christian, active in, wait, being filled. I'm active in letting someone else do something to me. Because you're active in your submission to God's Spirit. And He is the one who will will fill your life. So that, that, I mean, Paul's Paul's letter here, I mean, he actually says, so that you would be filled with the fullness of the full measure of Jesus Christ Himself. So that your life would be transformed. Renewed from the inside, your sins forgiven, cleansed of of even those desires to chase after the things of this world as the gospel becomes most important in your life. And then this command to be filled with the Spirit, and it's it's hard to see the way our, our English paragraph structures work, but this is the command then that from here to the end of the book essentially is the defining command of the rest of this letter. I mean, it, it's sort of tucked in the middle of a paragraph here, but this is the defining command. What's it mean to be filled with the Spirit? It means that, verse 19, we're gonna, we're gonna, our lives are going to be filled with song, giving praise to God. Verse 20, we're going to give thanks to God. 21, we're going to submit ourselves to one another. And Paul will spend then the, the next chapter and a half describing, well, what's that look like? What's that look like in marriage? What's that look like at work? What's that look like in your home? What's that look like in your church? It's to be filled with the Spirit, to actively submit yourself to letting God Jesus Christ, have reign in your life through the Spirit of God. And that's a difficult thing to do, to give up control of your life. I mean, many of us. I mean, we, we, we want to cling to it. This is mine. This is what's important to me. Or, or maybe, maybe at the big picture level, you've become a, a Christian. And so you've submitted yourself to the authority of Christ, and yet you know there's, there's this. This thing I won't give up. I don't know. I don't know what it is for you but ask God's spirit now what's what's that one thing and maybe it's something you don't yet have but you think if only I had that then my life would be fulfilled or or if this was taken away from me if I didn't have my health if I didn't have my money if I didn't have my 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 gifts or talents whatever it is then you think but I but I I need to hold on to that no be filled with God's spirit give up even the best things in this life for the sake of God at work in you and you see then how that transforms us. Verses 19 and 20 show that, that if our lives are filled with the Spirit, then how do we speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, in songs from the Scriptures, and songs written for the church? And, and we do it together, together as a church. I mean, you could sit at home in front of the television and maybe for seasons of life with, with mobility issues or, or sickness, that's the closest you can get to fellowship in the church. But, but what is Paul saying? Yes, there is a, a vertical aspect to this, that we are giving praise to God, but we're doing it, we're singing to one another. We're, we're addressing each other. See, the reason when we sing a, a, a hymn of faith together, and I don't just do it with my, my headphones on in private, although that's an appropriate place for worship as well, but I can't stop there. Because I need the reminder as I've prayed with you in, 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 a, in a fellowship group about the struggles you're facing and then to hear you defiantly uh, against all the obstacles in life saying, but Jesus Christ is most important to me. You announcing that truth transforms my heart. Because I, I walk through life and think, but, but can I make it this week? And you in worship link your arms with, with mine. And, and you hold me up when, when, when I'm about to fall and, and I do the same for you. See, we, we need to gather in corporate worship. We need to gather in, in fellowship, singing and praising God, making melody in our hearts. It just, it flows out of us. The gospel is so us. Now, now in my house, there's someone who's always singing. I mean, my, my wife, she, she just is always, always singing. So actually, if I'm home and studying, I have to put on headphones. So that, but now, maybe you're not singing out loud. I don't think Paul's explicitly telling us you have to sing out loud. And maybe you have a voice that for the sake of your family or roommates, you shouldn't be singing out loud. Which is why Paul says, do it with all of your heart, but maybe do it just in your heart. But our lives should be so transformed that every aspect of our, of our lives is reflecting the grace that God has given to us in Jesus Christ. And, and that's what Paul says in verse 20, isn't it? Let me read it again. And, and tell me if you can think of a time or a place that this verse would not apply. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. No, that's a verse which is overwhelmingly comprehensive. All the time, everywhere, in everything, in any circumstance. And remember, Paul writes this letter. Yes, as the the pastor who had the privilege of announcing the gospel to this church, but but this is one of Paul's prison epistles, written from prison. This isn't isn't a man who's, who's sitting on a beach, sipping drinks with his feet up, resting, saying, well, of course we could give thanks in this kind of circumstance. No, all of the time, even in the most difficult, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, that's a familiar phrase, even if, you, even if you've only been at church a couple of times. The Lord Jesus Christ. But stop and think about what a radical declaration of truth that is. Jesus. That was his name given to him, announced by an angel to his father. You were to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. His name means God saves. He is the rescuer. He is Jesus Christ. It's not his last name. It wasn't like the whole family was named Christ. That is a title. It's a royal designation. He is the promised Messiah. God's God's deliverer is here. And he is the Lord. I mean, This is where, when you announce that truth, you are defiantly facing the obstacles in your life, the trials in your life, the, the culture around you, and saying, no, Jesus Christ is Lord. Because he's the one who gave himself for us. The one who rescues us. And so to submit ourselves to Jesus Christ is to do so. To do so because he's the one who loved us. Yes, the response of the gospel of giving up control in your life, declaring Jesus to be Lord is difficult. But you're already doing it. Whether it's drunkenness, or it's pursuit of pleasure, or pursuit of health, or, or that the desire for control in your life, you're already giving yourself to someone or something else. But when you give yourself to Jesus, you give yourself to the one master, the one Lord who proved his love for you in giving his life for you on the cross. See, that is the hope of the gospel. That you and I will be transformed by the Spirit of God so that we can give thanks to God the Father everywhere, At all times, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you are welcomed into the family of God. Your your whole life has been changed when you put your trust in Christ. He's doing the transforming work of giving you a new name. And so church, be filled with God's spirit. Stop living foolish lives, but live lives that honor God Make the best use of the time that's right in front of you. Gospel moments to share the gospel with the children in your home, with the neighbors on your street, with your coworkers. So the gospel radically transforms. What does a spiritual life look like? It looks like a life that is, that is oriented around the gospel. Glorifying Jesus Christ, exalting his name, giving thanks to God the Father, and letting the Spirit of God have absolute control over you. Church be filled with God's spirit. Let me pray for us that God would apply his word to our hearts. Father,